You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Uh, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, thank you for your people. Um, I pray, God, this morning as we open your word together that you would come and speak to your people. That you would come and, and give encouragement where needed and strength where needed and healing where needed and, uh, and rebuke where needed even. But Father, most of all, we would pray that in our time together that you would uh, call us to the foot of the cross. Call us to that doorway of that empty tomb and uh, remind us of the hope of heaven that we have in Christ Jesus. Pray, God, that the message of the gospel would be clear this morning, that you would, um, that you would help me as I preach um, to do what seems really, really impossible. Um, help me to lay up some kindling um, around hearts this morning, and that your spirit would provide the spark necessary um, to ignite our hearts into flames, um, a flaming um, passion, for your gospel, and for people in our community. I pray that you will do that, and I, I trust that you will. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. So some of you probably heard this statement before. Um, if you've been around here long enough, you've heard this. Some people want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. The first time I heard this statement uh, by a dude named C.T. Studd, missionary, church planter, um, to, uh, and pastor to, uh, I think, three different continents. First time I read that statement, I knew that, that for me, this would be my mission statement for my life. Um, it's been many years. I've been walking with Jesus for about 22 years now. Um, it was quite a while back when I heard it. I've always resonated with uh, what I believe to be the truth here. Um, this fact that I believe that God has not called his church uh, to a life of relative ease or comfort. I think ease and comfort, I think, is an American idea or a Western idea. Um, I believe that God has actually called his family, the church, to be a dangerous, violent, you might even say vicious force that assaults the gates of hell for the salvation of lost souls. Matthew 16, 18 says that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's not the idea that the the gates of hell are attacking the church. It's the idea and the concept that the church is actually meant to attack the gates of hell. The gates of hell are actually meant to look like the doors of a fort that have been made out of a cardboard box when the force of the church is made against it. Matthew eleven twelve says that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. So the kingdom of heaven here on earth, right, was meant, I believe, to be a dangerous, 
a violent place where the, the forces of hell are continuously fought and continuously defeated by what? The power of the gospel. The power of the message of the gospel. The message of the cross. The message of the empty tomb. Until the return of Christ in glory. His final triumph. It's a battle scene in the book of Revelation when you read it. It's a scene of a savior king coming back on a horse. Clothes drenched in blood. The blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs who gave their lives for this message. This doesn't sound like the message of comfort and ease to me. Second Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this. It says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Catch that, divine power. To do what? Destroy strongholds. This is violent language. It's language of all-out war and destruction. That divine power to destroy strongholds. He says, we destroy arguments, and, which is interesting. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, you don't destroy false arguments by staying silent. You destroy false arguments by arguing right back, speaking the truth. These lives that we've been given... um, not meant to sit on the beach, according to Piper, John Piper. We're not meant to uh, sit on the beach and collect seashells. I would commend to everyone in this room, if you have not heard it yet, find John Piper's message entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. Listen to that. Uh, these lives we've been given, they weren't meant to be sitting on the beach. Weren't meant to live in relative comfort. Weren't meant to live our lives sitting in a church pew. Our religious life should not be made up only of sitting in a comfortable seat in a church on Sunday. It's not the image or the picture that the the Bible gives us. Our lives, as soon as we surrender to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, which means we surrender to Him as King and Captain, they're meant, our lives are meant to be like those who have enlisted in the military. If you start reading some of the old dead saints, the guys I love to read, the guys that are still alive still have yet to possibly be disqualified, so I'd rather read the guys who are dead. You can test whether you want to read their stuff or not first by their lives that were lived. Guys like Spurgeon and some of the, uh, some of the other writers during that time, they, they used wartime language when they talked about the church. Our lives are meant to be like those who have enlisted in the military. Instead, we like to see our Christian lives, our religious life, as something of more of a, I just signed up to be on a cruise ship. That's not the image of the church in the Bible. We have been enlisted in a military, and at that point, as soon as we enlist, submit, surrender to Jesus, be baptized, come out of that water, 
signifying the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus over our lives. At that moment, we get out of that baptismal tub and we're sent off to war. That's the image in the scriptures. Sent off to war with the very forces of hell. It's a very real thing. And in this war, our weapons are made up of the very power of the living God. This is that that phrase from the passage that says divine power. That's our weapons. Made up of the very power of the living God. Who did what? He defeated Satan's sin and death. With what? Three nails, two sticks, one empty grave. And that one empty grave, praise the Lord, becomes many empty graves at the final resurrection. When all the resurrected saints do what? Jump up out of that grave and not just escape all the terror of this earth, but we join our captain in a final battle against the forces of hell. It's our battlefield, guys, it's the battlefield of the mind and heart. <laughs> and the problem for Christians is we think the battlefield is Facebook. Um, the, the battlefield is the battlefield of the mind and heart. Ephesians 6.12. I'm going to spend a few minutes here in Ephesians 6. I'm going to bounce around in it. But Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? Our war isn't against flesh and blood. My war isn't against Democrats or Republicans. My war is not against teachers who want to teach LGBTQ in the schools. My war is not against flesh and blood. You know, the problem is, is that we live we live on this earth and we see people and we think you're my enemy because you think different than me or because you think unbiblically. And the reality is my war is not against them. Listen, my war is for them. If we could get that one word straight in the church today in the West, I think we'd be a force to be reckoned with. But instead, we oftentimes trade the real battle for a fake battle because that's exactly what our enemy wants. You get to fight in the wrong battle, you ain't even going to think about winning the war. He says in Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Get that straight, right? What do we fight against? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Frank Peretti wrote a book called This Present Darkness. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. Read it. And it's follow-up. I don't remember what the name of the follow-up was. You got This Present Darkness and piercing the darkness. Those are the two books. Read them. They'll blow your mind. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So therefore then, based on that foundation, Paul moves on in verses 10 through 11 of chapter 6. And he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? Oh, those nasty teachers, those bad Democrats and Republicans, whatever it is for you. He didn't say that, right? He says, he didn't say that. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. If we're going to heed this call to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan, and uh, all the forces of hell. When you think about that message, what are you going to need? You're going to need some kind of indestructible armor. Anybody want to go into battle without armor? No. There's an old preacher, not an old guy, but a preacher who 
many of us have heard of, I'm not even going to name him because I don't think it's worth it, but he'd always say, it's like charging hell with squirt guns. I'm going to come back to that. I don't believe we charge hell with squirt guns. I think he was fundamentally wrong from the get-go. If we're going to heed this call to stand toe-to-toe with Satan, all the forces of hell, what are we going to need? You're going to need some indestructible armor, some kind of spiritual weaponry, if you will, that you can actually count on. I can't count on squirt guns. I wouldn't even take a squirt gun into battle with me. That's stupid. Like, why even take it? You need spiritual armor, spiritual weaponry you can actually count on when that war against Satan, sin, and the devil gets bloody. This war, that war that you and I sign up for the day that we surrender to Jesus, is meant to be fought with something that you can actually count on, rely on. This is why I think in Ephesians 6, if you look at 13 through 18, he says this, is therefore, because the battle is spiritual and not physical in nature, and because you're going to battle all the forces of hell, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore. It's interesting because he just compounds this imagery of standing with his words. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, central to your clothing, holds it all together, right? You get the truth wrong, the rest of your pieces of your armor ain't so good and start falling off. Having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness to cover that heart of yours, and as shoes for your feet, my shoes, I need new shoes, by the way, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's the image that when you understand the gospel and you are equipped with it, you'll get to walking with it. In all circumstances, he says, not just some, but in all circumstances that you and I encounter in this war zone, take up the shield of faith, right? It's a shield that goes on your arm, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Satan is a liar, and not just a liar, but the father of all lies, the scriptures tell us. There's nothing that comes out of Satan's mouth that is true. He loves to speak condemnation, accusation, and fear, shame, and guilt. The darts that Satan shoots are laced with that poison every time he shoots at you. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation. It goes over your mind. It's a transformation in the way that we think. I'm saved now. I now think differently. I've been given a new mind to think with. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. I have a sword in my office. I should have brought it up with me, but y'all probably get scared. It's really cool. It's an old Braveheart sword, double-edged sword. It's enormous. It reminds me that God's word is the sword of the Spirit. This is why Spurgeon would say, every true believer will have ink stains on his or her nose from having his face buried in his Bible. It's the only way you take up the sword of the Spirit, which Paul continues to say, which is the word of God, And finally, he says, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. A friend of mine named Mike Sander, who preached here many years ago, 
who said that we need to see the circumstances of our lives like prayer alarms. Anytime something bad happens, pray. Anytime something good happens, pray. There should be prayer bells that go off in yours and mine's mind when circumstances start to hit the fan. So this armor that Paul has laid out here in Ephesians 6 is available to all of us if you're a believer, right? If you're not a believer, it's not available to you yet. You can't just pick it up. It starts with trusting in Jesus first. But this armor is absolutely indestructible. You can trust it. With this armor on, you can stand against the horrors of hell. And what you and I become is we become a force to be reckoned with. Every piece of that armor that we just talked through um, is, is available to us in the person and the work of the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. Think about every piece of that armor with me for just a moment. When you think about the belt of truth, what is Jesus? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the embodiment of the belt of truth. Jesus is our breastplate of righteousness. What does that mean? He's our perfection when we fail in sin. He's the center of the gospel, which brings true and eternal peace between us and our Father in heaven. We're, we're no longer God's enemies. We're now God's family. He's the author. Jesus is he's the author. Hebrews says the author. He wrote the book of our faith. And not only did he write it, but he's also the perfecter of it. You and I don't make our faith stronger. God makes our faith stronger. Jesus wrote the book of our faith, and he continues to perfect that faith. He continues to create it. Not, he created it, and he continues to perfect that shield of faith that we hold when we defend ourselves against the accusations and the lies of Satan, sin, and death. Think about the rest of the ways that Jesus embodies this armor that we're talking about. He's our salvation. So he's the helmet of salvation. So when you put that helmet of salvation on, what, you, what are you training your brain to remember? To remember that Jesus is the one who purchased my salvation through his victory at a cross and an empty tomb. Jesus is the word of God, right? This Bible is embodied in the person and work of Jesus, and it's all about Jesus. 66 books, 40-some authors, 1,600 years to write it, and every word in it points to Jesus. And when he came here, John 1.1 says that he was the word who became flesh. He's the embodiment of the word of God, the very creative and salvific or saving word of God. By the power of the Spirit, we use this to cut down the lies of Satan and sin and death. And then finally, the last thing that he talks about is prayer, right? When we pray, what do we do? We pray in unity with Jesus. Right now, he's in heaven Praying, interceding is the word scripture uses for us. He's praying for the saints. So when we pray, we pray in concert or in unity with Jesus as his spirit enables us to pray. Love that, that image. That as I pray, Jesus is in heaven, uh, metaphorically on his knees before the throne. Um, 
praying on my behalf and the spirit is praying inside of me. That's insane that the creator and the savior and the spirit would pray in and through us. That's powerful. That's divine power. So our armor, I think, is uh, more than adequate for the war we get to fight, right? That's introduction. <laughs> That's introduction. When I say that I believe that the church was not meant for comfort because it was meant for war, I think there's more than enough biblical context to support that belief all the way through. I don't know how you get past it and think it's not. I don't know how the Western church gets to this place of comfort and ease and serve me and let me consume more. Other than there is a force to be reckoned with, and that force is the force of Satan, sin, and death. And I think if the bride of Christ were to put on the right dress and go to war, gosh, I think it'd be crazy. I had another revival could happen. I really believe that. So this is why I laid hold of that mission statement years ago. Okay? And this is why I believe that we're not called to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. This is why I believe that we're called to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. And I believe it because it's the image I see all over scripture. Let me just zero in on one more quick thing. It's also the image I see when I look at Jesus. If you do an in-depth study of the life of Jesus, not just for you personally, as we like to do so much in Western culture, but when you do an in-depth study on the life of Christ and you see him, again, sitting with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, what's he doing? Running a rescue mission within a yard of hell. I believe that with every ounce of my being. I believe every part of Jesus' mission and ministry here on earth was spent within a yard of hell, all the way from that conversation with the woman at the well to a conversation with a wealthy young man. Right? Jesus didn't just go to the down and outers. He went to the up and outers too. The wealthy young man in Matthew 19, his conversation with a tax collector, very wealthy man, mob boss, if you tell the story right, twisting arms, breaking knees, give me the extra taxes I want them right now. This is for me. He talks to that little man named Zacchaeus, Luke 19. Zacchaeus repents, gives all the money back, and then some. You can move from that to all of his conflicts with uh, all the religious snotheads running around his time, right? Luke 20, 1 through 8 is a pretty good story if you look at that. Look at Jesus' unlawful arrest or his brutal crucifixion, his victorious resurrection, right? His hope-filled promise of heaven, all of that from Luke 22 to 24. What's Jesus doing? Running a rescue mission within a yard of hell. I don't know how you read it different. It's a practical question, I think, for us, if I've convinced us a little bit. The practical question is, what does it look like for us to do this? Right? What does it look like for us people, us Christians here, this side of heaven, to do this, to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell? Well, I mean, it would be really easy to just kind of placate the whole thing and say, go study Jesus' life with this image in your mind. And you probably ought to do that. At the end of the day, though, here's what I realize. We're coming into the end of year nine as a church. Actually coming down to the year, end of year 10, sorry. We'll be 10 years old, early August. I think it's like August 5th or 6th, right around, right around there. 
And here's what I know. After 10 years of standing in this pulpit, of shepherding among sheep that God has placed in this church, I've come to recognize over and over and over again, sometimes painfully, um, but I think in a, in a very realistic way, this can't just be Pastor Joe's mission statement. Right? It, it can't just be my mission statement. And by God's grace, I don't think it is either. So please hear that. I think when I look around this room, and I, even the people that aren't here today, when I think of folks that call this your church home, I think I see people who are like, yeah, that's where I got saved from. The edge of hell. And I want to go do this. Right? I see that. Um, my hope is to probably persuade all of us to make this even more so your life's mission statement. It's tattooed on my arm. Go figure. Y'all are like, we're not surprised. There's only two other dudes that have the exact same tattoo. And, uh, those other two dudes aren't walking with Jesus today, as far as I know. As far as I know, one's sitting in prison. I don't know where the other one's at. But when I remember when the three of us were together in the beginning, there was a sense we were going to do something great for Jesus. And I thought, well, let's turn it into a tattoo. Because that's what bikers do. <laughs> you turn it into a tattoo. So I think it's a serious thing. My hope is to definitely persuade all of us to make it more so our mission statements. Not that you need to go get a tattoo to make it your mission statement. I think it also takes some really sober thinking. Christy and I have had to think about this very soberly over the past 10 years. And there's something about living your life within a yard of hell. And when you verbalize that, and then when you put action behind it, it changes things. So if you're going to make this your mission statement, or if you're here and you're like, yeah, I'm on board, that's my mission statement, I'm in the end of the day we need practical ways to get after it right if you're going to enter a war zone and get on a mission making it like like i like to say a living hell for the forces of hell to do what they want to do if that's going to be your life i mean let me say this just to give us all some like freedom there's plenty of other churches in this town we talked about that not every church is going to have the same flavor this has been the flavor and, 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 and the tension of our church, I think, from day one. And there's places you can go and you can be comfy. Not that they're bad. Please don't hear that. I think this is right. Maybe I'm half wrong. Who knows? I'm just simply saying you don't have to be here. But if you're here, this is who we're going to be. right? This is who we are. And if this is going to be your mission statement, you've got to enter a war zone. <coughs> you don't get to sit on the sidelines and criticize you got to jump into the fight if you want to criticize. Fair? <coughs> so how do you do it? I'll quit bunny trailing. How do you do it? <coughs> how do you run a rescue mission within a yard of hell together? How do you do this like a, what I would say, a well-trained, heavily armed, fully committed band of brothers and sisters? Think about that for a second. Well-trained, Heavily armed, fully committed. Anybody ever seen the movie The Band of Brothers? <coughs> One guy in the back. That's good. Dave, you and I are on the same wavelength. Okay, there's a few others. 
Love that movie. So much good imagery in it. Let me ask some uh, rhetorical questions. When you ask, how do you do this? How do you become well-trained? <coughs> how do you become fully armed or heavily armed? How do you become fully committed? Let me ask this question. Do you have to be a biker to do it? It's a rhetorical question. You know the answer, right? You got to have tattoos and a beard to do it? Again, rhetorical question. You know the answer. Dave's in the back going, yeah, you do. No, you don't. <laughs> you have to have a seminary degree to do this? You got to have a crazy salvation story to do this? <coughs> and the answer, obviously, is of course not. You don't have to be that kind of person to do that. And there are people living within a yard of hell in every one of our lives. Every day at the grocery store, every day at the workplace, every day at the gym, every day at the gas station, right? <coughs> every day at the library, school halls, hospitals, mental health departments, fields, co-ops, city offices, businesses all throughout our city. You could go on forever. A 2009 study of Hastings said that out of the 25,000 people living in Hastings, 70% of them do not claim to know Jesus. 70%. Quick math. It's 19,000 people. 19,000 people. Who's going to reach them? Who's going to get after it? <coughs> the great thing is this. Here's what I've learned over the last 10 years. I'm not Jesus. I do struggle with a savior complex sometimes. I think I'm going to be able to fix it all and save everybody. I've learned through the school of hard knocks. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Right? Like, I'm not going to reach all 19,000 of those folks in this community. You are. It's your job. It's our job. It's a better way of saying it. It's our job. The question is, how are you going to do it? How do you run that rescue mission within a year to hell? The way that our elders have captured the practical side of this is through four words. Sharing, planting, training, and multiplying. Let me say it one more time. Sharing, planting, training, and multiplying. They're four very simple words. They're actually couched in what we would call discipleship philosophy or discipleship strategy when you get all into the fun, like, geeky, theological side of things. If I were to lay this out for all of us here, which is my plan today, if I were to lay this out for us today, here's the way I would capture it in a paragraph, and then we're going to tear it apart piece by piece, because that's what we do. Think about sharing, planting, training, and multiplying this way. Think about disciples, right? Christians. Every disciple who was ever made um, or who will ever be made, has to go through a process which begins with coming alive from the dead. You come alive from being dead in your sin. In Christian culture, we call this being born again, right? Um, you see this in John chapter 3. Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like, how do I get born a second time? What are you even talking about? And Jesus explains this spiritual beginning of coming alive from the dead. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is beautiful, beautiful text of scripture. We don't have time, but I'll go there and read it sometime today. Coming alive from the dead, alive to Christ. And then once that new disciple is brought to life or is born again, right? He or she then has to get rooted or planted in a local church. Why? For ongoing encouragement, spiritual growth. It's not going to happen anywhere else. Jesus did not design this spiritual life to be done alone. He designed it to be done in community. That's the church. You see it all over the book of Acts. And then as that new believer now, right? So the new baby believer, got diapers on, cries too much, still does things that just frustrate the ever-living heck out of you, right? As that new baby believer gets rooted in that local church, they start to grow spiritually. <clears throat> and as they start to grow spiritually, what do you do with them then? Well, they need to be trained. You've got to train those new believers as leaders. And you go, oh, leadership scares the heck out of me. I don't like that word. I don't, I'm not a leader. No, if you could see leadership not as the guy who calls all the shots or the guy that preaches every Sunday, but you could see leadership as an image of washing filthy feet of your brothers and sisters and those who would come to Jesus, maybe the image would change. It's an image of a mom and a dad, both changing diapers together. I can see all the women looking at their men like, hmm, hear that? It's biblical. Pastor said so. Changing diapers tonight, bro. <laughs> it's that image. It's the together image, right? What do you do after you start training leaders? After you start training people to wash filthy feet? That new disciple needs to be made into a missionary. That missionary then begins the process all over again with other lost people. That's the process of moving someone from being dead in their sins to becoming a reproducing disciple of Jesus. And that process is the process of growth for every one of us. It's much like the process of growth that happens in a person's physical life, right? You can see the image. You got this little baby that's born, and then they move on, they grow, and they become a contributing, fully grown adult, a matured adult in society. You got the baby phase, got the adolescent phase, <clears throat> got this strange, like, it is strange, especially if you count middle school into it, right? You got this, like, teenage slash young adult phase. Stinky phase. No showering phase. It's weird. <coughs> it's like they can actually drive cars, but they don't like to wash their own clothes or clean up their rooms. It's like, I've got to bribe you every time I want you to do this phase. They can actually make their own food, but all they want to do is just eat out all the time. It's weird. They seem mature, but they're really not mature, <laughs> but they kind of are. And then the last phase over here is that it's that adult phase, right? You become a parent. You begin to take responsibility for somebody else. You become a grandparent. That's what this is like. We capture that whole idea in those four words. Sharing, planting, training, multiplying. We're at 36 minutes in. I got four points left. Ready? <laughs> Tear it apart one by one. First point. Run a rescue mission within the yard of hell by doing what? Sharing the gospel. So look at the scriptures with me. They'll be on the screen. Romans 10, 9 through 15 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth what? With the mouth one confesses what? Sin and faith and is saved. 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Not just the special people. But in fact, if you do the study, Jesus loves to listen to those who call on him who are not so special. (coughs) Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? These are rhetorical questions. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? The best way to look at this passage is backwards. All right, for all the homeschoolers in the room, if you're thinking, oh gosh, you got to start playing everything backwards. No, this is not demonic, trust me. It's just the way that Paul puts this together. You read it backwards, someone is sent. That sent person begins to preach. Then someone hears the preaching. And then someone believes what they hear. And because they believe what they hear, they call on Jesus. And then guess what happens? Jesus saves them. That's the pattern. So the reality here is that uh, you, in this room, hearing this message, you're either someone who needs to hear the gospel and surrender to Jesus for salvation, or you're someone who has believed, has been saved, and is now being sent with this message of salvation for those who have not yet believed. So that they can believe, and so that they can be sent. It's a process all over Scripture. The question is, which one of those people are you today? If you've not yet surrendered to Jesus, I would plead with you. I would plead with you to not wait another moment. Why? Because the sinful lifestyle that you think seems really hot, it's hot right now. But as Lecrae says, hell's hotter. Even if I think my wife would need a park it there because she's cold everywhere. Hell's hotter. And it lasts a lot longer than the pleasure of the sin that you're engaged in right now. <coughs> if you surrender to Jesus, you get the privilege of sharing the gospel with people that you know who are living within a yard of hell. Now that sharing of the gospel can be a very challenging thing. There can be a lot of fear and uncertainty in the midst of that commission to share that message (coughs) I think for many people it can kind of cause them to tap out because that's scary the other side I think of western Christianity is that we separate ourselves so much from the culture that we're not even in places where lost people are anymore that's a whole other topic but you got to put yourself in places like Jesus did you got to trust in the spirit to keep you strong and don't go there alone and have accountability (coughs) But I would say this, if, if you're here and you've trusted in Jesus, you've surrendered to him, and you're not sharing the gospel with others, um, I wouldn't wait a second longer either. You don't need massive crazy training to go do it, although there is lots of training available. But if you've, if you've surrendered to Jesus, and, and listen, this is harsh, but if you're not sharing the gospel um, with, with, with other people, who's going to share it with them? Somebody else, for sure. But you're going to miss out on the blessing of being challenged while doing it, as well as seeing others come to follow Jesus with you that you were meant to share the gospel with. Um, So I'd say get after it. And come talk to our elders, myself, Joe Nelson, Donnie, 
Love to give you resources. Love to give training for that. And I think our plan over the next year is to provide some practical training on the how-tos. How do I share the gospel? We want to answer that question. We want to give you practical resources. So when that training becomes available, I would say one of the things you could do really practically is take part in it. To be a sacrifice of your time. Um, but you could get trained to be a missionary that way. <coughs> Second word is planting, right? First was sharing, now it's planting. We run a rescue mission within the yard of hell by planting disciples. Uh, look at Acts 2, 42-47. Here's what that passage says. Uh, it says that all the new baby believers in Jerusalem. Now, if you ever read the book of Acts, <coughs> in one day, 3,000 people get saved and get baptized. That's a pastoral nightmare. <laughs> 3,000 babies. I mean, I'm not trying to be like rude in saying that. I just know, like, when I first started following Jesus, it took a few people to change the diapers in my life for a while. I didn't just get my life together straight. Still smoking pot, still getting drunk, still yelling at my family, still looking at porn. I mean, when I got saved, I was a mess. Most of us are. When all those new baby believers respond to the gospel in, in the book of Acts, through the preaching of the apostles, Acts 2, 42-47 says they devoted themselves. That word devoted means committed. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, the prayers, and all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, this has haunted me for years, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, there's no such thing as the rugged individualism or personal autonomy that has so infected the Western religious landscape. Okay? Biblical salvation does not produce people who hop around from one church to the next like it's McDonald's or Burger King, um, looking for the latest fad or looking for the most entertaining or most ear-tickling preachers. And it certainly doesn't produce this either. Pet peeve of mine, right along with that one, doesn't produce grumpy believers who leave every time there's a little conflict. It's not what biblical salvation produces. There are goats and sheep. Biblical salvation produces disciples who get planted, they put down roots in a local church so that they can then grow personally and then at the same time help others to grow too. Those kinds of biblical disciples make it an actual priority, okay? It's a priority on the calendar to gather regularly with other believers, according to this passage, for preaching, teaching, prayer, fellowship, Worship, baptism, celebrating the Lord's Supper, giving generously and joyfully, proclaiming the gospel. It's the model we see all over the book of Acts and then all throughout the New Testament. Where do you think all the letters from the apostles came from or were headed to? Yeah, headed to churches. There are many ways that we, in a local church context, can take the leap into this kind of biblical um, rooting or being planted in a church. Um, if you haven't taken a leap into like serving yet in our church family, that's one low-hanging way you can do it. Start washing somebody else's feet in a church family. 
um, community groups meet twice a month, right? Whole families come to that. Bring your kids. They run around Joe and Eileen's house and they make a mess and it's great and Joe and Eileen love it. I don't know why. I wouldn't love it if somebody came and trashed my house. <laughs> they don't trash your house though. You bring your whole family. There's no real agenda other than eat food, get to know people, and encourage one another. It's twice a month. It's a real low-hanging commitment. It's not huge, but it has to become a priority on a calendar, right? Until I put something on my calendar, it doesn't become priority. It just becomes like, oh, I could be doing that tonight, but I had other plans. So you got community groups, um, serving. You got men's and women's Bible studies that happen pretty frequently. Um, you got Sunday gatherings every Sunday, 10 a.m., right? Listen, if all of this stuff is either non-existent, this will be harsh. If this stuff is non-existent or inconsistent at best for you, here's what's going to happen. And I, and I say this not because I hate you. I say this because I love you, right? I hate saying that that way because there was somebody that used to say that, and I don't, we don't like him. Anyways. If you're inconsistent and best or that stuff is non-existent, you're going to stall out in your spiritual growth. That's, that's all there is to it. You're going to stall out. And the reality is the people that could be brought into the kingdom of God by you will not be brought in by you. Here's the reason why. How could you bring them to a place that you only frequent when it's convenient for you? So you're either a planted disciple who's helping other disciples get planted, or you're a baby disciple with no roots who has yet to grow up and helping other disciples grow some roots too. So again, harsh as that may sound, it kind of is what it is, right? It's just kind of a fact of spiritual growth. It's a fact of life. And nobody can force us to move through those phases. At some point, we have to make those choices on our own. Um, I think our job as elders is to proclaim that and say, hey, this is what we want for us, is to move through those phases of maturity. At the end of the day, what I'm saying is you run a rescue mission within a yard of hell by one, sharing the gospel, Two, planting disciples, which means you have to become a planted disciple. And then we help others do the same. Third, training. Run a rescue mission within the yard of hell by training leaders. A second Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this is a pattern of multiplication, right? Each one teach one. Let me say it again. Each one teach one. New believers get one by sharing the gospel. Baby believers get matured when they get planted in the ministry of a local church. Spiritual growth doesn't stop there, though. Though I would say, sadly, most people, I think, in the Western church don't get beyond the baby phase. They don't ever get the diapers off and put on regular clothing. It, here's, the, here's the stat. Just so you know, this isn't like Pastor Joe's uh, personal beef. There's a stat, and I think it comes out from Barner Research, I believe. I might be quoting the wrong research place, but the stat basically says this is 80% of the time, talent, and treasure that it takes for a church to do its ministry is done by what percentage of people in the church family? 20. 20%. 80% of the work and the time and the treasure, the money that's needed to do ministry in a church is typically done by 20% of the people sitting in the seats out there. Can you imagine? Catch this vision. Can you imagine if 80% of the attendees of any church 
caught the vision for the mission and got after it? What kind of revolution could happen in the Western culture? If 80% of a room full of people said, that's my mission, getting after it, we're doing this together, I could radically change things. I think America would be radically changed. So what's needed to get beyond the baby believer phase is to become what I think, when I said earlier, a servant leader who takes responsibility for the spiritual care, spiritual growth of another young believer. This is why that passage I just read, Paul's encouraging young Timothy, Paul's young son-like disciple in the faith, tells him to do what? Find other faithful men and women. You, could, you can add that. Train them to be servant leaders. Because when you start servant leading and washing nasty, filthy feet of other people, when you get down in the trenches and you get dirty that way, you need strength. God's grace strengthens you to do that work. At the end of the day, we were not created to be consumers in a church. We're created to be contributors, called to give our time, our talent, our treasure to the mission of rescuing the lost within a yard of hell, and then getting them rooted, and then training them to lead from a servant's heart, right? The reality is that throughout our church, we have multiple areas of service, washing the people's feet that you could get involved with. And, and here's the thing, too. Let me say this. Our hope is never to use people to get ministry done, my friend Todd says this all the time. He coached me for years. You don't, use you don't use people to get ministry done. You use ministry to get people done. You follow me? I'm not asking, I won't ask anybody to go serve just because I need a job done. I ask people to serve because I know that service transforms people. When you get down and you wash somebody's nasty feet, you're reminded of just how filthy you are too. And it's transformative. And if you're not serving in that way, again, you've cut a piece of food off your plate that is good for your nurturing. What's needed is people who will say, hey, send me, I'll go, right? Send me, I'll go. Let me serve. Let me be a part of someone else's spiritual journey. So that's my challenge to us. Fourth, I need to get done here. Fourth word was multiplying, right? You got sharing, you got planting, you got training, and lastly, we have multiplying. You're going to run a rescue mission within the yard of hell, you do that by multiplying missionaries. Now, the reality here is I don't necessarily think that I have one single core passage to support this. Um, we would spend the rest of our time together for the next week just reading the Bible. That might sound really sarcastic, but you just read the Bible, and that's what you see. Um, I, I think that that nearly every passage of scripture I've referenced today has a multiplication factor built right into it. Everything Jesus said to his disciples was intended to help them become missionaries. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 actually instructed them to make more disciples who will then what? Make more disciples. The book of Acts then, after the Gospels, is actually a description of how the original disciples made those disciples who made more disciples who made more disciples. So a true disciple is actually a missionary. A true disciple sees himself or herself as a missionary to every person they meet. And the outcome of real true discipleship is that more disciples begin to see themselves that way and they begin to multiply into more missionaries. So this is why I believe that the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians. I do have one passage, Colossians 1, 28-29. I believe when the Apostle Paul says it is Christ whom we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I think he's saying all that because his heart is to see missionaries multiplied. Here's what I don't think Paul has in his mind. I don't think that, that he thinks that Christian maturity looks like a bunch of Christians with really fat heads full of biblical knowledge who don't then turn around and reproduce themselves and others while warming up church pews on Sunday mornings. I know that's harsh. But I don't think that's the image Paul has. I really believe that when Paul says that he labored with every ounce of energy that God gave him to make mature believers, that he actually had multiplications of missionaries in mind. To be a missionary is to actually see yourself as someone who has first been saved by the message of the gospel and then is now sent with that same message to see others ransomed from the edge of hell. I think that's the image of Christian maturity. And I think my hope is that anyone who calls the well their church home would become a missionary as well. A missionary who shares the gospel, plants disciples, trains leaders, and multiplies missionaries. That's the mission. My hope is that God would challenge us as we close. I don't know where each of you are at in this process. I don't know. Um, wherever you're at in this process, whether you are someone who has the gospel being shared with them, or you're someone who is trying to get planted, maybe you're someone who needs to be trained, maybe you're someone who's like, hey, I really want to multiply myself and somebody else. A prayer is that God would use something from this message to kind of spur you on to the next step. Sometimes I think this kind of can feel like a bit of an elephant, right? You know how you eat an elephant? Anybody know? You know how you, one bite at a time. Because if you eat them in one bite, one bite, you die. You can't eat an elephant in one bite. You have to eat it one bite at a time. And in this process of spiritual growth, discipleship, wherever you're at in these four words, the hope is that you would kind of attain that level of maturity and then begin to do that. So if someone's sharing the gospel with you, our hope is that you would respond to the gospel and then start sharing the gospel. Um, that you would then get planted in a church, maybe hopefully this church, and then begin helping others to get planted. And then that you would be trained as a servant leader who washes feet, and you would then start training other servant leaders who wash feet. And that you would then start to see yourself as a missionary so that other missionaries would be made by you. And that would complete the process. That's our picture of what it means to run a rescue mission within your heart of hell. Amen? Let me pray quick. Father, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the mission that you've given us as a church. Thank you for the image of what it looks like to share the gospel, to get planted, to be trained, and to multiply. Now, Father, uh, as we close, we recognize that all of this was embodied perfectly by your son, Jesus. He gave his life at the cross left the tomb empty, gave us the hope of heaven. I pray, Father, in these closing moments that you'd come, speak to us, lead us to that bloody cross, lead us to that empty tomb, remind us of the hope of heaven, and also maybe show us, Father, where we're at in that process and where you want to take us next. Maybe give us a practical way that you'd be calling us to take baby steps forward and take a small bite out of that elephant. Trust you to do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.